Hello, everybody. Just a quick disclaimer before this week's episode. As you know, we've been recording our episodes remotely lately due to the COVID-19 pandemic, so please excuse the slight dip in audio quality. I also wanted to give a shout out to all the nurses, doctors, and medical professionals working every day to save lives. Y'all are the real heroes, and we love you. And now, here's the show. From the beautiful city of West Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. Hey, hey, welcome to Film Forward, everybody. It is a Gimme 3 episode today, and we are celebrating the films from the year 2000, a mere 20 years ago but it feels like 20 centuries ago. And we've got an amazing guest helping us out with our tribute to Y2K today. And Sonia, I think you should do the introduction of our guest today. Hey, everyone. Before I do that, 2000 is also the year I graduated from high school. So now you all know how old I am. I'm 25. <laughs> so our guest today is a dear friend of mine, David Chu. We also Met in the year 2000, which Whoa. is crazy because that's not why I invited him to be on today, but maybe there was some cosmic energy. But yeah, we met in Davis, California in Leech Hall dorms in the year 2000. Yeah, David's a filmmaker, a writer, director, genius, <laughs> honor student in college, unlike me. Uh, welcome, David. <laughs> Thank you. I, I don't know if I can live up to that. I feel like the rest of this interview is just going to be a long disappointment, which <laughs> I suppose summarizes a lot of things. Um, but thank you anyway for that glowing praise. Before we get into it, David, how are you? How are you doing? How are you holding up with this this new normal? You know, somebody asked me that recently, and they said, "Are you doing well? Are you doing bad? Are you struggling? Are you thriving? Are you confused? Do you find new purpose? Are you?" Uh, depressed? Are you anxious? Are you happy? Are you at peace? And I said, yes. Yeah, <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> so I feel like that's my best summary of, of uh, just feeling all the feels, all of them. But you know what? Every so often I stop myself and say, this is a once in a century global event. So you know, if I kind of wasn't feeling any feels, maybe that would be, maybe that would be more of a sign of a problem than uh, <laughs> You know, failing all the feels, you know? Yeah, you're 100% right. You are 100% right about that. But when I'm in all the feels, what I like to do is watch movies. So that's mm. what we're going to talk about today. 2000, kind of an odd year, uh, yeah. as it turns out. Uh, I was kind of going through, like, what came out that year as I was making my picks. It was a tough year to follow. Like, it followed 1999, which is, you know, widely considered one of the one of the greatest years for film releases. But, you know, it's um, so funny. I wrote, well, that was one of the first papers I wrote in my college film class was about how 1999 was this pivotal moment for cinema, which is funny because I think I wrote it in 2000. So there was, not, <laughs> there was no retrospective like, on it, but I was like, oh, all these movies showed us at the end of the millennium and, yeah. and where we were. And, and in retrospect, it really is true. You, I, I watched all of these and I was just like, this is so, you just feel it. You can see it echoing through probably everything. That's just where the world was at that point in yeah, time. For yeah. sure. Well, let's dive in. Sonia, we're going to start with you. Ladies first. We'll get your first of your gimme three from the year 2000. Okay, cool. So this isn't really like ranked in order 
except that I will say that my third movie is one of my top three movies of all time. So you'll want to stick around for the whole episode so you can hear (laughs) which one that is. So my first movie is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? by the Coen Brothers. It came out in the year 2000, as we all know, starring George Clooney, John Turturro, a big-time Packers fan. I forget his name. The third of the criminal guys. that is Tim Blake Nelson. Tim Blake Nelson. I just, I had to pick this because there were a few music movies that were like on my short list for this episode. It was um, High Fidelity, Billy Elliot, and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But then I was like, you know what? Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Is just such a like special and unique movie and the music in it is just incredible. Like I'm super into Woody Guthrie and old time train music and all that kind of stuff. So it's like, I listen to this soundtrack on a regular basis and it's just so beautiful. Like I love how they did the like sepia tone without making it cheesy at all. And I love George Clooney when he's got a sense of humor. So that's why I picked Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? David, what do you think of Oh Brother? It kind of reminds me of one of my favorite Coen Brothers films of all time, which is Inside Lewin Davis, mm-hmm. which is another film about music. And again, I you know, maybe it's just because I'm getting older. Um, this is 20 years ago, as we were observing. I've been thinking a lot, especially revisiting some of my Gimme Threes about like where I was just in terms of film appreciation or as a, as a, as a film watcher then as I am now. So when I was, I remember watching it and I came to college and I was all hyped up on like, you know, literary illusions and symbolism. And I got really hung up on where it followed the Odyssey and where it didn't. Like that was like the one thing I was like, like the parts where it kind of diverged from the Odyssey. I was like annoyed. I was like, no, you're supposed to do the Odyssey. Um, (laughs) I was like, it was like, it really bothered me. Uh, Maybe like some, some element of like how OCD I can be about this. And now uh, you know, since then, like as I look back on it 20 years later, the part that interests me the most are actually kind of the same things Sonia said about the, the time period itself, this reflection of, I think, is it the 20s or the 30s? Is it Depression era or is it interwar? I'm trying to remember. Or I guess they're both interwar. Is it like, a, it's like, is the, I think it was like the 30s or something. I want to guess the it's the 30s, but I'm not really that good at history. I mean, I, uh, you talk about Davis, I went on to like write a paper on like science fiction of the interwar era or fantasy, the origins of fantasy, I should say, of the interwar era. And like, it became like one of this time I was really obsessed with, which is like 20s and 30s in between World War One, World War Two, And and kind of like, like um, we were saying actually about the millennium too, it felt like a, a period of time in which there wasn't anything obviously, you know, a war. I guess at one point there was a depression, but it was like there was still the sense that society was on the verge of becoming something completely different and it was discovering itself. You see that in a lot of the literature and a lot of the music and a lot of the art of the period. There's a there's a sort of playfulness and an experimentation right. throughout the art. And, uh, and even in the music, I think that there's this something that's, you know, you're seeing something that's really fascinating. We're seeing like, these folk traditions. So you're seeing what essentially are like music of like the people, things that would have just been lost the time and just passed on through oral tradition, but are now suddenly being committed to recordings and sold and not just merely by anthropologists. And like, you know, we find old wax recordings of like, you know, folk music, but really actually commodified, you know, this growth of, of, you know, this engine of capitalism turning what was essentially a localized culture into a globalized culture. 
And you see mm-hmm. that really, especially in the music. And that's what I think of when I think back on that is, you know, it's an odyssey through an America of particulars. I always love the odyssey. I always love odyssey stories because they, they're all about the particularities of place. So this is the island where Circe like turns people into animals, or this is the island where, you know, this is Scylla and Charybdis, these two monsters. And you sort of see that the kind of uniqueness of America, but also through the the sense that that America is about to become maybe a bit more homogenized. Maybe some of that uniqueness is about to be lost. So when I look back on No Brother, Where Art Thou? I see it in a completely different lens than I did when I was uh, when I just first got to know Sonia, actually, back in the in 2000. Yeah, I, I, I haven't seen it in probably about a decade or, yeah, or, maybe, or maybe more. And hearing you talk about it makes me want to makes me want to rewatch it. Because I think I probably had the same reaction to it the first time I saw it that you did initially. But, you know, as you mentioned, as we grow older and as we become a little bit more present of, you know, where our country stands and how it got here, it would be a fascinating rewatch. So, yeah, the Coen Brothers are really great historical. You know, as somebody who writes a lot of historical films, I've only come to really appreciate they're really, really wonderful historical filmmakers. And, mm-hmm. and not just like about giving you facts, but giving you zeitgeists. Right. Right. And, mm-hmm. and they're just. Uh, again, I feel like that's a film of the time because it didn't feel like it was um, it wasn't as funny as Lebowski and it wasn't as sharp or something as something like a no country. Right. So at the time, I thought, oh, like this is one of their sort of like pleasant little works. But when I think about it, I'm really glad you brought it up, Sonia. It's actually a very profound work about the American soul. And, and really, that's because so much of the American soul is wrapped up in that great like Woody Guthrie style of music. I mean, it's so. It's so American, and partly because it's also a, a music of America's flaws, of its inequalities, as much as it's a, a celebration of American culture. Absolutely. Oh, brother, where art thou? Make sure y'all check it out. If you have not seen it, I am definitely going to revisit it probably this weekend. Yeah. Can I yeah. throw in one other like tidbit about the Coen brothers that I meant to say earlier? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> we just we just rewatched No Country for Old Men the other day. Oh, yes. And I noticed when I was re- when I was watching Old Brother the other day after that, they have the best scenes with clerks in convenience stores. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like someone should just like study that because I was <laughs> like, oh, my God, these are just such memorable, hilarious scenes. Oh, that scene with where he says something about was it the coin and it's been traveling all its way to yeah. here. That's my favorite scene in the movie. <laughs> yeah, that guy is great. Uh, the guy's face is amazing. Yeah. He's just sitting there with this dumbfounded look on him. Like, what the hell are you talking He's about? So confused. He's right. so flabbergasted by what's happening. I know. I, I think about it. It really sums up that, you know, I mean, it seems like a really funny scene, but I feel like it really sums up the whole film because the whole film is you're kind of confronted with this unfathomable monstrosity of evil. Yeah. And we're all kind of that guy, right? Like Tommy Lee Jones <laughs> at the end is like totally mystified yeah. by evil. And, and you know, Josh Brolin is like, I don't even understand all the world I'm swept up in. And it's kind of humbling to think like we're all that store clerk just go- sitting there going like, oh, I don't get it. Uh, <laughs> but that's what you feel like. I feel like that right. so much in the face of all the evil that we're seeing in our world today. I just feel stupefied. Yeah. How have we gotten here? And <laughs> yeah, how the, exactly. How the hell did we beat it? Exactly. But that's a story for another podcast. That's true. <laughs> the heavy pod, oh. That would be a heavy podcast. <laughs> yeah. 
My first one is Almost Famous by Mr. Cameron Crowe. I grew up on a lot of classic rock. I was I was kind of a classic rock junkie in high school, which is when I discovered this film. So it really spoke to me. And I remember like when I first saw it, I, was, I thought Stillwater, the band in the film, was just so cool. And I was like, oh my God, these guys are awesome. And now like watching it however many odd years later, I'm just like, dude, these guys are jokers. They're pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> They're talented, but they are... They are man babies. Um, so it was it was it was fun to revisit the film. For those who don't know, I think it's loosely based off of Cameron Crowe's experience as a very very young writer for Rolling Stone, following around particular bands. I think this story is loosely based off of him following around Led Zeppelin and maybe Bad Company. I I think I'm not sure. The film's about a 15-year-old who's skipped several grades because he's a genius and he gets a job for Rolling Stone uh, following around a rock and roll band and he goes across the country with him and it's a very fun coming-of-age story. The cast is incredible. It is worth watching for Philip Seymour Hoffman's you know, small supporting performance alone. He is... He's delicious in the movie, and uh, so is Francis McDormand. I mean, you got Jason Lee, you got Anna Paquin, you've got like Jimmy Fallon in the best thing he's ever done in his whole career in a cameo. Like, I mean, the the list goes on and on with how many amazing people are in this film. But it's a feel good movie. It, it's just wildly entertaining, and it's a good time. It's two hours of a, of a rocking good time. I was going to say, you know, it's funny for a lot of coming of age stories. It sort of boils down to like this question of like, how do I have sex with a woman? You know what I mean? Like, like I remember wasn't Kate Hudson was in it, right? Yeah, Kate Hudson. And Patrick, by the way, Pat, I know what happened. I mean, uh, Patrick Fugit, if you're out there, I hope you have a good career. I thought he was really phenomenal. I thought, man, that kid's going to. He's take great. off. Yeah. So I kind of expected him to do more, but, uh, and maybe he did. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, maybe he's like a hit on the indie circuit and I need to educate myself. But, um, no, uh, I, I, I Googled him while we were watching it and cause I had the same thought. So Patrick, <laughs> I, I want to work with you. We also have the same birthday I found out on oh. IMDb. So, you know, big fan. Yeah. He was great. But like Kate, Hudson, I forget if she did she get nominated for that. She she had there was a sort of there's a whole feeling I feel like where it's like women in these films are always like almost like elven like for lack of a better word. They're sort of like mysterious and you're just trying to like you can't quite wrap your mind around them. And I feel like you know like that Patrick Fugit is character is is constantly just like trying to figure out the mystery of Kate Hudson, right? Mm-hmm. And I always wonder, actually, I'm kind of curious to get Sonia's take on it. Like, what is it like as a woman watching this? Are you like, dude, it's obvious? Like, you know, or, hey, you're too young. She's never going to go for you. Or or are you like, oh, I can kind of put myself in that shoes. I just think of like how men are mysterious to me. I always wondered what it's like to watch these kind of movies where it's like, I really want to, like <laughs> the plot, for lack of a bit better word, is like, I really want to screw this woman. But, I, you know, I want to fall in love with her. I want to get with her. But she's just such an enigma. Like, I wonder what it's like as a woman to watch those kind of movies. Well, you know, it's funny because like I put myself in her shoes watching it. Although maybe now I should be in Frances McDormand's shoes. I don't know. But um, <laughs> I know, right. Cause we all old. <laughs> I identify with Zoe Deschanel's character, like the older sister who just has to like go out and see the world. And then Kate Hudson. And, you know, I think it's true that like 
women when they're maybe their whole lives, but definitely in that young age, adolescence to probably 30. I mean, women are just a lot more together and kind of knowledgeable than men, I think, yeah. inherently. But then you also see how women just focus on that whatever the guy is, you know, in this movie, it's Billy Crudup, and all of their intelligence can just get flushed down the toilet the second that they like focus in on a guy. And inevitably, you're going to pick a guy that sucks for you, you know, like that is going to treat you crappy at least once in your life. Yeah. <laughs> Probably the rock, you know, probably the guitarist in a band. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, but definitely like, I think what's nice about watching movies about like teen boys, you know, even, even like, you know, super bad or something that's a little bit more raunchy is that boys are so, can be so sweet at that age. Right. (laughs) Oh yeah. Before it all goes wrong. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, Yeah. You know what I was thinking? I guess I was thinking about it in con. I just finally got around to watching Book Smart, which I thought was amazing. I don't know if you. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. You, you see, uh, and it's um, it was really fascinating because Caitlin Deaver's character is a lesbian, mm-hmm. and she, you know, she's constantly chasing this other girl that she's in love with. So it was really fascinating to see that whole. I mean, it's such an archetypical like I'm in love with somebody, and you're sort of hoping it's going to build to like the night where you hook up perks of being a wallflower is kind of like this, you know, is he going to hook up with uh, Emma Watson? Um, and, and it's not just, I say hook up. It's not like it's just, it's, it's very just, you know, earthy and transactional. It's really, it's, it's so full of adolescent infatuation, but it's really fat. It was fascinating for me to see that from uh, the storyline about two women, you know, yeah. like, I was, like it, it's only by screwing with the gender dynamics of it, of what you typically see depicted. It made me, really think about like, oh, wow, what is it? What must it be like, Out, you know, like, you know, w- when you consume media as a man, you're so used to the media being directed towards you that you sometimes, it, it only takes a moment like that to kind of jar you out of it and think like, oh, what's it might like for people who are not part of that? Right. Not part of that targeted audience. I mean, I was just thinking about like going back and like, again, I was out of high school, so I totally was fresh off of remembering Right. Like I was like, just like Sonia said, we graduated in 2000 or whatever. I was fresh off of remembering what it was like to think, oh, I'm a high school student. Like, how do I get the girls to like me or whatever? And like now when I look back and I'm like, dude, you're a kid. Why is Kate Hudson going to like you? Like, what kind of fantasy are you operating (laughs) on? But at the time, you're totally. As a high school student, you're just like, oh, well, why not, right? Like, don't yeah. I have all this stuff to offer? You know, like, you don't realize, like, hey, you're, you still have growing up to do. It's okay. Absolutely. I, I remember listening to an interview with Cameron Crowe about, like, his deflowering scene, like, when, you know, the other Band-Aids pull him into the bedroom and every, everybody except for Kate Hudson's character is kind of surrounding him and there's this kind of moment where he's looking at Kate Hudson and he said, this was like a really like the most personal, the most personal part of the movie for me because it really happened to me and I made it. And I was like, nobody is going to get this. Nobody's going to relate to it. I thought about cutting it out of the movie because it's just, he just thought it was too like, look at me, look at me, look at me. But he said that so many people actually, it was the opposite effect and people like, took a whole bunch of different stuff from that scene 
that related to their own personal experiences with their first time or their first love or unrequited love. Like so many different people took a different experience from it. So it just goes to show kind of the more personal you can get, the more universal it could be. I mean, I, you know what it reminds me of? I think I remember watching that scene and thinking it really ex- it shows how, when, especially when you're young, but even maybe when you're any age and you're really infatuated, you're really in love with somebody, even if you don't really know them. He doesn't really know Kate Hudson's character, but he's infatuated with her. Right. Like you could be surrounded by other women, but that's your other people. But like, that's all you can think about. Right. Is that person. Right. And that's true. Like, I think, you know, I, th- I sometimes think back in my life and I was like, and Sonia was talking about like, oh, you know, you, you know, some, some of the choices of, of men, uh, you know, you look back and like, what was I thinking? Like, sometimes I look back and I think like, oh, there were really maybe some people in my life who maybe I should have pursued a relationship with. Not mm-hmm. that I have any regrets. I'm, I'm in a happy relationship right now. But like, like maybe there were people who were healthier for me, but I was totally ignoring those avenues. Because I was so obsessed with what I thought I wanted or what, you know, I was infatuated with. And instead of being open to some of some really wonderful people who can be in your life that sometimes you don't notice, which I suppose is itself a movie trope too, right? Like, isn't that, in fact, that's sort of like actually Patrick Fugit's character is also that, right? Like, it's like, oh, yeah. you're so obsessed with Billy Crudup. Why don't you see me? Like, right. it's, it's interesting the way we sort of get this tunnel vision when we're just obsessed with, with not just people, I suppose, but I guess it's also a metaphor for the whole for the whole idea of like, like rock is so much about image rather than mm-hmm. about, is it really about the music or is it about, like you said, I love what you said about like, now they look at it. It's like, this is kind of a crappy band. <laughs> but <laughs> right. at the time you're really infatuated. Yeah. Just like, I'm sure if he really stepped back, he's like, he wouldn't work out with Kate Hudson's character at all. This wouldn't be a very pleasant relationship. She's in the no place to really settle down. And then what, but like, that's, it's so much like rock. It's just about like, just the feeling. Of, it's, yeah. It's feeling, being swept it's off your feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good but choice. I will say, I mean, rewatching it, I had a huge crush on Jason Lee and Billy Crudup even now. So <laughs> well, yeah, there's definitely they're something about these. Like, well, <laughs> Billy Crudup's amazing. Yeah. I, you can't, you can't go wrong with Billy Crudup. No, but I actually think Jason Lee steals that movie. Yeah, that's true. I just have to say, he, I guess, kept being like, oh my God, he's just so good. Oh my God, he's so good. (laughs) And he's wearing a t-shirt with himself on it. And it was like (laughs) one scene that was just cracking me up. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Almost famous, my friends. If you you have not seen it, check it out. I think it's available to rent. I don't think it's available free on any streaming platforms currently because we watched it on a good old thing called the DVD uh, the other day. Oh my gosh. Um, Speaking of 2000. Speaking of Um, 2000s. (laughs) Okay, Mr. David, let us get your first one. All right. So this one is actually very much in line with, I feel like, just with sort of a similar vibe to the the two that you each um, listed, is Boiler Room, which is a film that I saw back in 2000 and really stuck with me, even though I don't think I watched it again until recently. So funny, when Sonia asked about this that was one of the first things that popped into my head and i'm like wow i haven't thought about that movie in 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 20 years or have i you know i will say it's something that i keep coming back to especially when i see other movies that are sort of in that vein i thought when i was watching wolf of wall street i was like or margin call i'm like oh this reminds me of boiler room yeah um and kind of like patrick fugit ben younger is a it was like an amazing filmmaker who has done stuff since but i just feel like this guy just deserves to have a, a bigger career 
Like this guy, like I remember watching it thinking like, oh man, this guy's going to go places. This is like, it's great new voice in cinema. And you know, it's tough, you know, it's tough to get a movie made. So it's, that's the challenge of it. Right. I come back and I like, that's a movie I keep thinking about. So what it is, it's, it's, it stars Giovanni Ribisi, which is also, it also feels like a very 2000s uh, throwback, you know, like he was like really all over uh, cinema in that time period. And it stars him as this young Jewish guy who's like, dropped out of college and is running like an underground like casino out of his apartment. And then some stockbrokers come and they discover him. They said, you want to come work for our company, but it's not really a wall street company. It's sort of like the boiler room aspect of it is it's, it's, it's kind of a scam. It's, it's as he comes to discover it's they're pushing stock on just regular people around the country. They're cold calling him and aggressively trying to, kind of sell them kind of like telemarket them into buying stock and i'm not going to ruin why and what's going on with it but it's this shady operation but what it does is it offers him money and in and some level of legitimacy because his father is a judge and he's just clearly craving that his dad's approval so even though he kind of knows this may be a morally dubious choice he also feels like this is the chance to show my dad, like, I'm real. I made it. You can be proud of me. And so he kind of takes the plunge and goes into, you know, what ends up being a really dark path and, and a really wonderful exploration of capitalism and high finance and, and the sense of invincibility. You know, there's so many times people say, oh, we're just going to make millions of dollars and nothing's going, everybody wants a piece of the market. It seems really silly to say that now after we've gone through several recessions and economic <laughs> crashes. It's like the idea that the market is totally invincible and safe seems crazy. Right. But at that time period, it really did. And we, it felt like we were, you know, that was, there was a Francis Fukuyama book, The End of History. I remember feeling like, like that was circulating around, like, oh yeah, all the great era, you know, issues of history it's were, were sort of behind us and we're like going to ride high into the sunset. America can do no wrong. We are invincible and the economy's invincible and the market's invincible. And, uh, and it really kind of captures that ethos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, this movie surprised me. It, this is going to be a hot take, but I, I kind of enjoyed this more than Wall Street and Wolf of Wall Street the other like stock market, you know, big movies, you know, I, obviously it's not as like masterfully done. It's, you know, Ben Younger is great. He's not Scorsese. So it's not as masterfully made as Wolf of Wall Street, but this film has a lot more humanity than yeah. I think both of those other films do. And it explores why, you know, these humans kind of go to these dark places and explores a little bit more of, it's an examination of greed and, and it's got, you know, relatable characters, which I mean, I guess some people might relate to the Wolf of Wall Street, but the no, nobody that I know. <laughs> you don't relate to Jonah Hill in Wolf of Wall Street? <laughs> Personally, no. I think like maybe the glasses is, is the only thing. <laughs> you know what I think was really uh, when I again, I, I, seeing it now, 20 years later, my film appreciation is different. One of the things that struck me was I remembered, it was so funny. I remembered, oh, it was about greed and that's, he wants to be successful. It must like those other films, but he's not doing it for greed. Yeah, he's Actually, doing it for, for his father's love. 
for his father's love. You actually never get those scenes where he buys the fancy car and he's wearing the, you know, what, yeah. you know, you know, the, the party scene where he gets, you know, all the, the prostitutes or you never see the scene where he, um, you know, was walking down in the elegantly tailored Armani, all the things, again, talking about like those comparable movies like Wolf of Wall Street, where it revels and you see the character revel in all the riches. He never does what his, his triumph is, is when it feels like, my dad loves me. My mm-hmm. dad finally loves me. You know, thinks I'm a success, thinks I'm a real man. And I think that really adds, that adds such a human dimension to it. It's Absolutely. one of the masterful choices in the movie. It's funny too, I, I have to say, I, I, at the time, I think, I think now I'm just more in, um, in touch with my Jewish identity. But like at the time, I don't re- didn't remember how Jewish the movie is. Like it really, Ben Younger, I was looking up, he actually grew up in a modern Orthodox Jewish family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's all of these just references. There's a scene where he drives up and there's a sign. It says Jewish mother on board. And he quickly rips the sign <laughs> off the car because <laughs> right. he's afraid the other guys will see it. Or <laughs> right. there's the reference he tells his dad. Oh, you just want you know, somebody to, your son to have a good job so you can brag about it at Yom Kippur. You know, it's really fascinating because it both captures, I think, there's just something really interesting about these, this character be kind of unabashedly Jewish because he doesn't have to be, but it's it's so much, I think, an expression of Ben Younger's own personal story, but also that I think Ben Younger is pushing back against the sense that his dad is a judge and his dad is, you know, going to, you know, synagogue on Yom Kippur and all that. And yet he has all the trappings of morality, but is he, is his dad really a good person? Is his dad really a loving dad? You know, and I think that's a metaphor for the society as well about what's lurking beneath the society of a seemingly healthy economic society. Again, felt like America was riding high then, but is there sort of a rot underneath? And so you see that both in the family structure, but also in the social structure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I want to thank you for introducing me to this because I, when it started, I was like, oh, here we go. Like I, I, I thought <laughs> yeah, I knew what true. I was going to see, but, right, right, but it, right. it turned out not to be that at all. So it was a really big, pleasant surprise. And one more thing that I'll say is, you know, Ben Affleck, sometimes he's great. Sometimes he's dog shit. He is always, in my opinion, at his best when he is playing a jackass. Oh, he's so good in this movie. Big, big jackass in this movie. And he's great. I'm like, yes, I love me some heel Ben Affleck. Love it. I love him. He just goes in there and he's, he's played, you know, the other thing I, you know, we talked about, uh, female points of view and stuff like that. And it's actually, this is a really interesting contrast with my, my second movie. Um, but this is such a masculine culture. I mean, mm-hmm. everything from like, Oh, we don't, we don't, uh, what is it? We don't pitch the bitch is the side. Like right. we don't sell the women. Um, and so much of it is about like the guy, the dad that we follow that he's sort of scamming. He's sort of playing his insecurities as a man. Yeah. You know, and it's so much, so much of this hyper masculine culture too. And, and he acknowledges and white, right? Like all of these guys are white. Even I think, um, they make, they, they make, um, Vin Diesel out to be like an Italian, right? Right. Um, and, and it's funny. It's like, it's clearly Ben Younger is, Oh, you know, he's so immersed in hip hop culture. You can see it from the soundtrack. He has Neil Long playing such a prominent role as the love interest and secretary of Ben Younger as an intelligent character in her own right. But I think he's saying a statement about like not just maleness, but white maleness in these guys, the sort of deconstruction of them and the power and privilege and, and sort of also the lostness of these like white guys who are just trying to like kind of like prove themselves even the way that he says there's a a fascinating line he says at the beginning like 
oh, you know, he quotes Biggie Smalls, but then he says, well, I'm, I'm a white boy. So this is, so my version of going and slinging crack is going and working at a, a bro, you know, at, at this boiler room uh, brokerage. Right. And I mean, that's a fascinating statement in itself, because obviously we know that like, you know, white people can be, you know, poor and sell drugs and all, Walter White was selling drugs. Well, made a whole show out of selling drugs. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's really fascinating, right? What does it say about, what is he deconstructing about the, the image of white men in society and what he thinks of himself as a white man. I mean, it's a, it's a really layered film, but it's, it's, there's a breeziness to it, right? Like the Mm -hmm. editing has got this kind of hip hop feel to it. It's got this kind of punch. The story just moves. So some, I remember at the time, I think I didn't necessarily pick up on all these layers, but when I look back on it, it's such a deconstruction of our, of our society, especially at that peak moment of like peak capitalism in the, in 2000. I agree. I agree. Boiler Room. It is available right now to stream to rent again. Not available free anywhere. We're 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 making the studios money right now. Is what yeah. we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Sonia. Let's get your second one. So I feel like I should start this with like a quote from the movie or something like pine nut, macadamia nut. Something I don't know. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just naming nuts. My second movie is Best in Show. Um, by Christopher Guest. And I want to say it's kind of by like the whole cast, right? Because we know how crucial Mm -hmm. they are to creating the characters and the moments that we like cherish so much. For those of you who don't know, Best in Show is the story of five or six different people or pairs that are all headed to compete in the dog show the Mayflower dog show in Pennsylvania. So it kind of follows them from their respective homes with their respective dogs to this dog show and then all the way through to the culmination when one of them is crowned best in show. You know, you just have literally some of the best characters ever created on screen. You have Cookie, um, the like slutty terrier owner played by Catherine O'Hara and her husband, Eugene Levy. You have Jane Lynch as the butch lesbian poodle trainer, and then um, Jennifer Coolidge, aka uh, you know Stifler's mom, the MILF, um, mm-hmm. as the like Anna Nicole Smith esque trophy wife. Fred Willard as the color commentator at the dog show, where he's clearly never seen a dog show or maybe even a dog before, <laughs> and just like. <laughs> Saying the wildest stuff, the gay couple, Michael McKeon and um, the other actor who's amazing. I forget his name that owned the Shih Tzus. I mean, it's like also like the pairing of the dogs with the characters and how the actors like take not just like character inspiration, but like physical inspiration and like styling like from these dogs, like how it plays into each other is just like it's like literally perfect movie. There's also a song about a terrier. And for those of you who don't know, I have a terrier. So like big fan of that song. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. It's it's had to go on the list. Also, it's like this movie that me and my mom always riff on. It's like one of our cherished favorites together. So I assume you guys have both seen it. Or my yeah. description is just that funny. <laughs> it's, it's one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. Yeah, it's, I think, you know, one of the things that I love about all Christopher Guest movies is him and his team, his cast, like they they create these characters in a way they are, you know, they they are poking fun at them. There's no doubt about that. But they also, what makes it so funny is how 
seriously they take them and how much respect that they treat for these characters, which makes it all the more hilarious. But at the same time, like there's a lot of heart in this movie at the end, which I won't give away when you find out who wins the dog show, like you genuinely feel happy for this person. And you're like, yes, like, thank you. Thank God this this person needed a break and, uh, and he got it and you're, you're, you're ecstatic. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it just Christopher guest and, and his cast, like they, they do these a lot, these like mockumentary films and they are people who know people like they just, I don't know what it, they have a, a knack for creating these characters that you feel like you can meet on the street, these regular regular everyday people, but they're hilarious. Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, it's, I, I would say that there's a few comedies in there where I'm like, this is the funniest stretch of like I've ever seen in cinema. And one of them for me is Fred Willard <laughs> providing the color commentary. Yeah. There's a, there's a bit where he talks about what if you put a dog with like a little Sherlock Holmes hat and a pipe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> they ever dress a rope with a Sherlock, get a pipe going, you know? <laughs> And it's so funny because you're like, you totally imagine like, oh yeah, that would be really cool. Like, that's what I would say, but I don't know anything about dogs, you know, like dog shows. So like, I was like, that would be really funny. And like, it's so, it's because you said it's so human. And I think it's really interesting. You know, it's interesting. I don't know. I'm curious to get your, your both take on it. I, you know, I never thought of it now that we just only now juxtaposing it with like Boiler Room and Almost Famous, but they're really films about people kind of in search of meaning in their life. Mm -hmm. And again, I wonder if that so feels very 2000s. You know, I look at the younger generation and they're getting out there and it's like, you know, like the Parkland kids or the, you know, the Sunrise Movement and Greta Thunberg. And it's like, oh, we're going to save the world. It's like, well, yeah, you're in epic times. You like you know, you know what you, you know what your life is going to be about. Right. Like, but like, yeah. I felt like in the two thousands, it was like, shit, what is, what is the mean? You know, it was, it, it felt, we had this false sense of security and like so many movies, I think were just about like, how do I find meaning in my life? My life feels as if there these people found meaning in dog shows. Right. But it's, <laughs> but it's, is it really that different from like trying to find meaning in music and rock music? Is it trying that different from trying to find you know, meaning in in economic success and in in flashing cash and showing how you know tough you are to the other guys at the boiler room. Like, right. isn't is it's it feels like there was there was an emptiness in society that uh, that people were responding to. That just made me think. Like, I think the movie that won Best Picture in 1999 is American Beauty. American right? Beauty, which is yeah. like that's exactly what that movie is about. <laughs> right. I think yeah. probably are picking up on something very real. Yeah. I never really would have made the connection between all of these things if it, it wasn't for the framing of movies of 2000. Because right. I was just like, what are movie? What does it mean to say, oh, it's a movie of 2000? Well, what was 2000 about? Right? Like, just like I'm sure if we, 20 years from now we do like movies of 2020... It's going to be a little weird. There wouldn't be much. <laughs> no movies <laughs> came out in 2020. Right. But like we're, to, we're probably 2021 or 2022, whenever, I, you know, it takes a yeah. life cycle for the movie to get made. But like you're probably going to see everything through the lens of the pandemic, right? Like, yeah, you know, it's just unavoidable. And so I just sort of was like, well, what was 2000 about? Like 9-11 hadn't happened. Like what, what was 2000 about? So like now it's sort of making me think, what does it really mean to be like a movie of 2000? Like what was 2000? What was it like? 
on the calendar. Like in the same way, like 2020, it's like, all right, we get it. It's like the clusterfuck year of awfulness, right? Like, <laughs> like, but what was 2000? So it's really suddenly making me think about like, what does that mean? Yeah, very interesting to revisit these with that with yeah, that, that lens. Yeah. Best in show, hilarious, hilarious mockumentary by Christopher Guest. Check it out. It is available on Hulu, I believe. You do not want to miss it. And rest in peace, Fred Willard. You oh, I know. Just incredible in that movie. I know. It's so heartbreaking. Okay, my second one is a film called Shadow of the Vampire. It is a movie about a movie. It's specifically <laughs> a movie about the making of F.W. Marnow's 1922 masterpiece, Nosferatu. If you have not seen Nosferatu, fuck you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, if you're a horror fan and you haven't seen Nosferatu, if you like any horror movie, you have F.W. Marnow to think. Mm. This was the OG horror film. It's based off of Dracula. Um, but the film imagines if the making of this film was an actual experience and Max Shrek was an actual vampire, which there are rumors that he was. And Max Shrek is played by Willem Dafoe and just picture Nosferatu and Willem Dafoe. And yes, that is as cool as it is. Dr. Marnow is played by John Malkovich. You've also got Carrie Elwes in there who plays like this German cinematographer who's hilarious. Who else is in? Eddie Izzard? Is he in there? No, Jeremy Irons. Oh, even better. This was like, I think the first film that Nicolas Cage like started a production company. And this was, I think the first film that they did. And they, they it's, it's, it is by no means a perfect movie. There are moments where it's a little slow, but it is different. And that's what I love about it. As far as like movies about movies, it's different. And as far as horror movies, it's different. It's just, it's just fresh. It's a fresh take. And I love movies that take real events, real things that happened and put a fictional spin on it for the love of the game. And this movie does it so brilliantly. Defoe is just, he knocks it out of the park for as much scene chewing as he does in this movie, which he does his fair amount. There's an equal amount of subtlety in his performance. I can't imagine like the, what it must've been like to play this role. Cause he's playing a vampire who's pretending to be an actor playing a vampire. So you have like all these yeah. like nuanced subtleties throughout the movie that are just they're just really fun. And just seeing him and and Malkovich like go at it head to head, it's 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 worth a watch for that, for that alone. But I I really, really just love this movie. I love movies about movies, and this one was was fun. Fun and fresh for me when I first saw it, which I saw it not too long ago for the first time. I think I saw it like two or three years ago for the first time. And I was like, hmm, fun discovery. Have you seen it, David? Yeah, I was trying to, I don't think we, we saw, we didn't see this together, did we, Sonia? And I'm trying to remember. No, I've, um, I'm really embarrassed. I've never seen Nosferatu. Fuck you, no, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> well, I know where I saw that. I saw this at a double feature that played Nosferatu and Shadow of Vampire. Oh, it was cool. some sort of film festival. That's how I got it. You know who's also in this movie? I totally forgot is Carrie Elwes, um, yeah, the Princess Bride guy, and also yeah, he's, uh, um, he's great. There's this line where he like he he first shows up to like the shoot because I think the other cinematographer was 
killed by killed. Trick. Was eaten so, or whatever drunk yeah. in blood. So Gary Elwes shows up and he's like, okay, what lens is it? And they're like, 35 millimeter, sir. He's like, hmm, not my weapon of choice, but it'll yeah. do. And <laughs> And he says, are we loaded? And he says, yes, sir. And he says, great, me too. And he just starts firing his gun to get the actors to react. It, oh is, it is a hell of an entrance in the film. It's so good. You know, there's another guy, Eli- Elias Marriage, who I think he made one other film after this. And, yeah. Uh, and it's like, man, all these incredible filmmakers of 2000. And I'm like, they really should have had better careers. Because, you know, I was looking up him just now. And apparently he... he um one of the things that got his name made his name and it was um directing Marilyn Manson music videos, which again mm, that makes feels this, the most yeah. two thousand story <laughs> right. that you could possibly say. Um like And it totally makes sense watching this movie. It's, oh totally. Yeah. It's it's such a it's got it's such a mastery of horror and, and atmosphere and, and sort of all the things you love about about creepiness. I mean, I, I think it's, it's such a love letter to the artifice of filmmaking as, yeah. you know, because so the whole idea, the irony of having an actual vampire in something that's so such an inherently artificial thing, creating, you know, creating movies. I oftentimes think like sometimes uh, the best way to kind of not be scared at horror movies is to go participate in the making of a horror movie. Right. Because then you're just like, oh, now I understand how all of this is made. This is just actually, you can probably, you know, like, you know, oh, that's what the blood is. And that's what this special effect is. And and that's how it all of it. And again, I think it's interesting. It's, it's uh, again, maybe I'm now seeing it through this lens that we talked about. But again, it's it's a film about, I think, is, is sort of striving for greatness, right? Isn't that what mm-hmm. Murnau is trying to do? He's trying to create... Yeah greatness and again uh, there's something about that time period where i think people are reaching out for meaning and 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 finding it in kind of and sometimes in kind of funny little ways right dog shows or the goofiness of trying to make the perfect this vampire movie which again at the time i guess nobody had ever really made vampire movies before this is the first and also this idea of it's a time period going back to sonia's choice about um oh brother where art thou it's a time period in transition Right. Like it's, you get the sense that, that Max Shrek is the sort of something ancient from like the mists of time. Right. And Murnau is this, you know, kind of modern director. I think it alludes to like him participating in like SM and, you know, and like the sort of the German Weimar Republic scene of the sort of like uh, the indulgences of, of that time period, the sort of modernity of that time period. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm just now, and maybe I'm, I'm putting, you know, overloading the point, you know, only it's easy to read into it too much, but I'm seeing it as a time period of 2000 as this moment of transition. We were on the cusp of something. We were searching for meaning. And then ironically, we would sort of, we'd sort of get it in the form of nightmares we didn't um, imagine were possible. And, and that's, that's very shadow of the vampire too, that somehow beneath it all is sort of this, you know, darkness that we really don't even know what we're getting into, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that can be kind of paralleled or mirrored with, you know, the time that this movie's taking place in, in the early twenties, you know, yeah. same thing. They're searching for meaning. There's all this new innovation, new industry, and, you know, is followed by a lot of evil and war. Right. Yeah, that's true. It's really hard not. I suppose it's like there's another great film that came out um, called The White Ribbon. I think it won mm-hmm. um, the best foreign film. And I think the Cayenne Palme d'Or. The same thing. It's about like, I think anytime you see German society in this time period, 
you just can't help but think, oh wait, but Nazis are around the corner, right? Yeah. Like it's just yeah. you can't get that out of your head. And and I think people filmmakers know that they know that, and they're trying to tap into it. And the humor in all of this, there's a darkness, and I think the darkness is the sense that like there is this sort of unfathomable, untapped evil that we we're kind of skipping down the primrose path into and we don't really know what we're getting into. And ironically, that actually turned out to be a very good analogy of what 2000 was about, but I'm not sure any of the people at the time really knew yeah. that's what was going to happen too. It could have just been serendipitous. It just could have been, you know, like sometimes sometimes God tells you what to make, you know? <laughs> right. You know, he's trying to foreshadow for us what's coming down the line. Right, right. That's so true. I'm glad you brought up the white ribbon because I don't think Nick has ever seen that movie. And I think about that movie all the time. Oh, so good. Haneke, is that how you pronounce yeah. his name? Haneke, Going back to things I, think, I can't yeah. pronounce. Yeah. Um, yeah. Haneke. Yeah, he is so incredible. Um, Such a great director. Yeah, that's one of those. I, we should watch that movie again. It's yeah. so quiet and so big at the same time. Yeah, that's a kind of movie I, I remember. Actually, I'll, I'll make a full confession. I saw it with a friend of mine who's very cineliterate. And I watched the movie and you said quiet. I was like, well, what was that movie about? Just some of these bratty kids. And he's like, don't you realize they all grow up to be Nazis? I was like, right. oh. And once you see it through that <laughs> lens, you, you it totally changes how you see the movie. Wow. You know, they're like, oh, they're not just bratty. They're, they're a whole generation of sociopaths, mm -hmm. you know. It, Let's uh, check it out now. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. become Nazis, you know. But it's not in the movie. It's you just right. have to know. Like if I ripped it out and, and and played it to like an alien that somehow understood, you know, cinema but like didn't understand history, they might not know that. They might not like it's you have to just sort of know where it situates in time. The the film doesn't do it for you. It just sort of makes you just do the math in your head, you know. 100%. I'm excited to see that. The yeah, white. It's really good. The white uh, ribbon. Everybody at home, check out Shadow of the Vampire. Uh, if you're a horror fan, it's uh, it's a fun one. It's not a it's not a horror film per se, but it's a it's kind of a comedy. Yeah. It's, I mean, it actually is. A, it's not kind it, of a comedy. It just is it a is, comedy. Yeah. 100%. Okay. So, Mr. David, we'll get your second. So, my second is, and I. Apologize to anyone if I'm not pronouncing this correctly, but Fa'at Kine, mm -hmm. which is a film by the legendary Senegalese filmmaker. And again, I'm hoping I'm going to pronounce his name right. Usmane Sembene. And it's all about, to talk about a time in transition. It's a time where, you know, Senegal has got independence. It's kind of coming into its own as a country. It's transforming in a, in a rapid way. It's, it's confronting modernity. It's on the cusp of what it means to be uh, what a 20th first century Africa looks like. But it really is a very, very simple, straightforward story that's told without a lot of like obvious bells and whistles, but a lot of meticulous craftsmanship about this woman who runs a gas station and is really the center of society despite all of the patriarchal structures against her. That she's she's this really this woman who is succeeding with a smile on her face and a cheerfulness, but also a no nonsense attitude. She doesn't take crap from anybody, and and she will she'll call you out if you try and pull a fast one on her. But as you come to learn, 
that she's endured a lot of sexism in her life and a lot of personal pain in her life, that men have betrayed her, whether it's men she's had love affairs with, whether it's her own father, whether it's, you know, like in so many ways, men have used their power to avoid to avoid any responsibility, including the fact that her children's fathers have refused to step up and contribute in any way to the raising of her two children who are taking the exams to kind of go on and go to to college and have a better life. And she's both had to support them as a mom, but also as a businesswoman economically. And she still has the ability to kind of give money or give help to other people in her communities. So she's somebody who, for whom you get the sense that her whole society depends on her. And yet it refuses to acknowledge and recognize that she should have a good place. You know, she should have uh, equality. She should have rights and protections and respect in society. Um, And this makes it sound really heavy, but it's not. It's a delightful, fun, kind of very slice of life, very low key in many respects. A lot of the scenes are done without a lot of music and a a lot of like trick camera angles. And they're just kind of the ebb and flow of conversation, a very natural, almost documentary feeling slice of life to it. And yet, it's something that really just, once I saw it, 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 it really resonated with me and it just stuck with me. And, and it's, again, one of those films that I just keep thinking about. Yeah, I, I have heard of it. I have never seen it. I'm a fan of the director. Black Girl is uh, one of my favorites, which he did probably like 30 some odd years before this one. So I, I know what a master he is. And hearing you describe it, it would make probably a great double feature with Black Girl. It's been on my list for a long time, but I have not gotten around to it. Thank you for bringing it up again, because now it's it's back on my radar. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's definitely worth it. I, I'm, I'm be curious to see what you think of it, because it's really, um, it's it's one of those films, I think, that really shows, especially when you talk about, like, he made Black Girl, like, I think when you say 30 years before, um, when you were at that high level of experience and craftsmanship, how you can make a lot of subtle choices and they're right. all master strokes. And again, I think when you're younger, some of these filmmakers like Ben Younger or Elias Medjer are at the start of their career, and they're making louder choices. They're not bad choices, right. but they have the kind of energy of youth. Whereas this is a film by somebody who's a practiced master mm-hmm. who just knows how to play the notes so he doesn't have to call attention to it. And he's, and he's nothing to prove. He has no need to call attention to himself as a filmmaker. He just knows that how to play you like a piano, how to play your heartstrings, how to play your emotions with just the deft work of a master. And so there's a, a great subtlety to it where, you know, the, there's not a lot of choices that call attention to themselves. And yet when you go back and you look at the scene, you're like, wow, this has just taken me for an emotional ride. Absolutely. I'm excited. I'm excited to see it. Fat Kinney available on Canopy for free. Canopy. Canopy. With your LA library card, you can see 10 free movies. We are going to take a quick break, everybody. And when we come back, we're each going to give our final Gimme Threes from the year 2000. From the year 2000. Remember the Conan Conan (laughs) O'Brien one? (laughs) I love how they kept doing it after the year 2000. After the year 2000. That was the best. That was the best thing. In the year 2000, we will return, everybody, on Film Forward. If you like the music in our show, all songs are performed by the band Dub8. Check out their new EP, Ayudame, available on iTunes and Spotify.
All right. Welcome back to Film Forward, everybody. This is a Gimme 3 episode, one of our favorite things to do. And we are joined by Mr. David Chu, yes. writer, director, general, great dude. <laughs> film watcher. Which film is, watcher, which, which cinephile. Which unites, us, unites yes. us all today. And we are, we are diving back into the year 2000. So far mm-hmm. from Sonya, we have gotten Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And Best in Show. For me, we have gotten... I've already forgotten what I talked about. Shadow of the Vampire and Almost Famous. There you go. And from David Chu, we got Boiler Room and Fat Kine. I apologize if I mispronounced that title. Yes. And now it's time to dive into our third and final. And Sonia, we'll start with you again. Dude. Where's your car, dude? (laughs) It's very controversial that uh, Dude, Where's My Car is actually in my top three films of all time. I don't know who it's controversial to, but I assume it is to somebody. But yeah, Dude, Where's My Car is definitely one of my all-time favorite movies. I think it is probably one of the most watchable and like best-paced films I've ever seen. And that is why I will always defend it in my top three is like, if you watch that movie, it's over before you know it, but it's an hour and a half long. It has like no dead space. There's so much going on. And then, you know, and it's very like crazy. There's aliens and there's a girl named Christy Boner and there's (laughs) a dog that smokes weed and, you know, uh, blind children, hitting people in the balls with baseball bats. Um, But at the heart, it's like a really, really sweet friendship between Jesse and Chester. I almost forgot their names. Yeah, I mean, like me and my oldest friend, bestie Sasha, always quote this one part because Sean William Scott's like saying that he has like a weird feeling in his stomach. And Ashton Kusher's like, well, you got to go to the bathroom. And he's like, no, it's something else. And he's like, you got to go to the bathroom. And then he realizes he has this like Eureka epiphany moment and they're about to like run out of the door and like save the day. And then he's like, oh, wait, I have to go to the bathroom. (laughs) And Ashton Kutcher's like, dude, I know your body. (laughs) And they like share this like sweet look. Yeah, it's just all around amazing movie. The premise is these two guys wake up from a night they don't remember. And there's a lot of weird things like their cabinets are stocked with a lifetime supply of pudding and they don't know where their car is. And so it leads them on a crazy day in search of their car where they have a lot of hijinks and meet a lot of people. They meet Fabio. And yeah, it's it's really just, oh, and then the other thing I have to mention, I saw this for the first time with my mom and Sasha on pay-per-view in the apartment I grew up in in Manhattan. And there's a part where they meet these um, people that are obsessed with aliens that worship Zoltan. And they wear bubble wrap jumpsuits. And my mom was like, oh my God, I've always wanted to make a bubble wrap jumpsuit. And she was just like so inspired and so impressed that like somebody had also thought of her bubble wrap jumpsuit idea. Um, So that's always been like a sweet uh, movie that I shared with my mom, like best in show. (laughs) I'm sure there's more to say, but oh, it has ween in it. There's a ween song in it. Voodoo Lady. Have you guys seen it? I have not. Oh, my god should i you know what it sounds like it sounds like the hangover before the hangover yeah kind of it, it is in a way the hangover before the hangover but with pot so it's a little less aggressive 
Yeah. It's, yeah. There's it's, two, actually, there's two great phrases that come from Dude, Where's My Car? Being stoned, they say shibby. <laughs> and being like really messed up is lopsop doy, hmm. um, which I say frequently. <laughs> but only when I'm lopsop doy. <laughs> I don't think it falls into our uh, discussion of sense of belonging <laughs> that we were exploring before the... Uh, <laughs> on a man searching for his car. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. There you go. <laughs> I don't know. I'd have to something. see it. He's searching for something. I'd have to see it. I have no... But, uh, you know, he's definitely lost in a way. Yeah. <laughs> he's trying to discover his, his motor vehicle. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, we talked about people that didn't really have a big problem. So they had time for like existential dilemmas, right? They weren't in the midst of a war or a pandemic or a a toxic presidency or whatever. So, you know, you could have this movie about these completely aimless guys that just like to smoke weed and watch animal planet. (laughs) And that's like totally fine. And you don't feel like you need to criticize or wonder like, why are they so aimless? Right. Also, I think it's completely uncynical and like unironic, which, you know, I think that I I love the hangover, the original one, but it's a little like it's a little cynical or something Mm. like this movie is like really joyful. Yeah, that's pretty rare. I mean, and that's really that's that's appreciated. You know, I I think I appreciate it even more. You know, when you're younger, you like edgy stuff, maybe. But now that I'm the older I get talking about getting older as I tend to appreciate stuff that's sometimes just just joyful and without needing to like pose and kind of a, like you said a cynical or edgelord kind of way right that just can have be really sw- i mean actually it's kind of remarkable what you said about like oh i dude i know your body like especially in 2000 like you you would have think in the middle of like the gay panic you know you know no homo kind of attitude of like to say something that's like like that you know between two guys as a as a you know a, just a sign of friendship is actually pretty remarkable for a film yeah, you know? and the guys are played by Ashton Kutcher and Sean William Scott. We should mention, and they are—they're both very funny. Yeah, very, very funny. Yeah, that, at the height of their talents. <laughs> yeah, you might yeah. say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I realized that my dude, where's my car that I opened with was actually a line from Big Lebowski. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was. <laughs> That's what Donnie says when they walk outside and they realize the dude's car has been stolen. He's like, "Who's uh... your car, dude?" <laughs> But that's like one of my other favorite movies. So, oh my god, <laughs> I, guess I love that's, why. <laughs> that's another kind of movie that starts out as just sort of ambles into this weird weirdness, this weird world, right? Like the similar kind of way of like some a character that's just like an unlikely hero who just kind of stumbles into kind of like like a, a weird odyssey, right? Like you know, bumbles into an, a weird odyssey. It's like a whole genre of that. I think it's kind of interesting. Dude, where's my car? I recommend uh, you get Shibby and enjoy it. It is available wherever you can get your films. I have the VHS if anyone wants to borrow it. Yeah. You can, if anybody can still play stuff. that technology. <laughs> we have a VCR you could borrow also. <laughs> okay, so my third and final is a little bit different from Dude, Where's My Car? It is In the Mood for Love by Wong Kar Wai. It is just a gorgeous piece of filmmaking. It takes place in 1960s Hong Kong. It's about two young married couples that move into the same apartment complex. And the film focuses on the husband of one couple, Mr. Chow, and the wife of the other couple, Mr. Chan. And both of them 
kind of slowly discover that their spouses are cheating on them with each other. So these two victims of infidelity kind of come together in a way to kind of deal with their pain. And that the way that they deal with their pain is where the genius of this film comes into play. Instead of kind of confronting their situation with their spouses head on, what they do is they kind of role play what the seduction of their spouses might have been like. The characters are coaching each other to be like, you know, like say like, uh, my husband wouldn't say something like that. He would do this instead. So, okay, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do it again. We'll take it from the top, essentially. <laughs> they develop their own relationship, but they, they continue to play this, this, this role play game. So you never really see their spouses. You never see their faces throughout the whole film, but they feel very present because they're there. They're being played by, you know, these, these other people. So it is, it's just, it, it, I, it, that's just scratching the surface of what this film is about. It's just a remarkable, beautiful, patient film. That's very, very painful, very, very beautiful. I could talk about it for, for far too long, but, uh, but I won't because I could do a whole, a, a whole other episode on it. But have you, have you all seen in the mood for love? I not only have seen it, uh, it is by my favorite filmmaker of all time, Wong Kar Wai, and I almost picked it as my number one, which I'm kind of glad I didn't, so that we could have some some uh, variety for this, yeah, there this podcast. But I signed me up for any Wong Kar Wai. Some people, uh, some filmmakers tell stories, some filmmakers, you know, take you on a, a ride, but no, nobody quite like Wong Kar Wai will put you in a mood. Mm -hmm. place um and and the mastery of that sort of aching nostalgia and longing i mean i don't know if anybody has quite mastered an emotion like the way this guy has and and the way he'll take a piece of music and play it again and again and again until it starts to become embedded in your in your soul and you like even if you've never heard the piece of music before you become incredibly nostalgic for it by the end of the film it, and, and then just how elliptic, you know, like you said, so much of it is about what's not said, what's not seen, right. who's not seen, you know, what's no, you're not really even sure what's happening. Were they being cheated on? Are they going to cheat with each other? You don't know. And yet it's not about, it's not about the plot. It's about yeah. the feeling. It's about the, and, I, and even like the English translation of it, you know, in the mood, the title in the mood for love, it's about this sense of this permanent sense of being like in anticipation on the verge of something, but not yet sure if, if it's going to happen. Right. It's, it's a state mm-hmm. of being. And really the film is about a state of being more than a, even about a story. And then this is like, nobody like Wong Kar Wai can just take you into that, to that psychological emotional place yeah no nobody can pull this film off nobody i i have i could say that with full confidence nobody other than Wong Kar Wai could pull this off i guess they 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 started making this movie they didn't have a script you know they kind of like had an outline very Wong Kar Wai way yeah right it's just remarkable knowing that because when you watch it it's just so meticulous and everything feels so purposeful and it is, but it's just remarkable that they went into this, you know, without a solidified plan yet, everything feels so solid. And we were talking about it 
you know, earlier with your other, with your other choice, David, about how a master can, you know, do these subtle strokes and this movie is just laced with them top to bottom. Yeah. So have you seen it? Um, I actually have not. I've was just thinking about it. I, he's like the one there's, he's a filmmaker that I really am not super familiar with his work. The only thing I've seen is Blueberry Nights. And that was only because they shot part of it in Ely, Nevada, which is where my family's from. So I saw that. But Chungking Express is like very, very high on my watch list. And now this is going to be right next to it. Definitely. That's that's my favorite film of all time, Chungking Express. When Nick picked this movie, I saw the list and I thought I just assumed it was one of your picks. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I didn't remember David picking that. For people that don't know, David is actually the reason the person that got me into the film industry. And I remember Wong Kar Wai was like, always your reference point for anything you were like working on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I want to do it like this thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, he may, he does, going back to what you said, Nick, he makes it look so effortless. Like, you know, like it'll, it'll it's this dreamlike feeling mm-hmm. that it sometimes even like Chung King Express, this is the, the shot are very carefully composed, right? It mirrors the restraint of the film. So like Chungking Express, it's it's got a very loose handheld camera. It feels very improvisational. And yet everything feels so honest and precise. And again, another film where he's finding the script as he's, as he's making it, which is funny because he began as a screenwriter. Yeah. And, and it seems like, well, you know, wouldn't a screenwriter have more respect for the script? But maybe it's because he's so internalized what it means to write a story and to tell a story that uh, he can sort of work without a safety net. He can just sort of say, well, I have the idea of what the script is. And then writing the script for him is the entire creation of the movie, like all the way through the editing, all the way through. And, you know, I'm sure that, you know, maybe make some people nuts, you know, like it can, I'm sure some of his his editors maybe or whatnot. No, it's funny too. His editor is uh, William Chang, who... I believe is also his art director and his costume designer. Oh wow. <laughs> which is which is like such a funny like he he served as both the art director and the costume designer and the editor on In the Mood for Love. That's remarkable. And right? very I mean that's like that's got to help the editing process. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You wouldn't think those two things would go together, but, uh, but it really shows, I mean, it's a real family that he has. Like Chris Doyle is his, was his cinematographer for mm-hmm. a lot of the years. It's like a lot of his, his usual Tony Leung, who, who's one of the finest actors cinema has ever produced is, is an, a longtime Wong Kar Wai collaborator. And he, and Maggie Chung play off each other so amazingly. And Tony yeah. Leung, I, I, I think, I actually don't know if Wong Kar Wai's career would have worked without Tony Leung. Like, yeah. he just knows how to, like, roll with it. And, and like, some of these scenes, like, they don't really know how it's going to fit into the movie. And they don't really know where the overall story goes. And I'm not really sure anybody other than Tony Leung could make that work. You know? right. right. Like he's just such a, just, and he's got such a perfect, insightful face where he just like, again, I kind of this, uh, you know, maturity, but also a lostness to it. It's just really. With, with both of them, with, with him and, and Maggie, it's just talking again about subtleties, like just little minutia of movements of him, like, you know, looking at her, just like moving his eyes to look at her. And then when she looks back at him, he like, 
turns his head away, you know, just scene after scene where, you know, nearly nothing is said, but so much is said. Mm. It's just remarkable. Like I can't even begin to fathom like how I could, if I can get to half as good as this in my craft and, and filmmaking prowess, it, it would be a life well lived because this is just like, it's otherworldly. I don't, I don't know how he does it, but uh, yeah. I just, uh, I, I enjoy watching it. <laughs> I think uh, it's also, you know, some filmmakers are like chameleons, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you're, you know, like every film is like a different, you know, you kind of admire how much they just sort of embrace their genre and other filmmakers are really like specialists, like auteur. I don't say auteur because that feels like a, ju- a value judgment, but like they're like you, you're watching a Wong Kar Wai film, you know it immediately. Right. Yeah, like, right. and, and you also know nobody else can do what this guy does as well as he does it. Right. Like he, he's not going to try and, you know, be Michael Bay or, or be, uh, you know, he's not going to try and be, um, Elias marriage even, or any right. of these other people, but he is, who, he is who he is. And he just does that. What he does like just to total perfection. There's something about that. I think when you really specialize like that and you just have some, some style that you just completely embrace wholeheartedly that it can really take that style to a whole new level because everything in your artistic being is focused on making it's like reminds me of like david lynch right like everything is going to making that movie type of movie so it's by the time and this isn't his first film like so by the time you're getting i think he'd been making films for about a decade by the time he made in the mood for love so by the time you hit that you're getting somebody who's really just at the peak of not only their craft, but of the style of movies that they yeah. that he makes. Yeah, it's that it's that that perfect the perfect spot in his career where he's like he's honed his craft, but he's still fresh and young enough to just be like you, you just feel the energy popping off the screen. It's great. Yeah, yeah. It's in the mood for love. It is available right now on HBO Max if you have that, and I highly recommend it. Once you are done watching it, the color red will undoubtedly be your favorite color. Yes. Yes. Actually, all of his films have a real strong color palette, too. Like, mm-hmm. I always think of the blue in Chungking Express. It's very dominated by blue. Um, I think of the green in 2046. I mean, it's he's he just has a just this incredible use of color. Yeah, he said he, like... He, uses a lot of Hitchcock Technicolor films as his as his color palette references and you can totally see that in this yeah. and his other movies it's got that very I, I don't even know if it's like you know the, the the film stock that he selects to 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 shoot on as well but it feels very classic gorgeous just gorgeous stuff to look at yeah yeah it's a vis- it's a feast it's a mm-hmm. sensory feast really but I was going to say visual but musically too yeah and audio wise i mean his no, I don't think anybody has quite the mastery. We talked about music and these things. His mastery of music is so, and how he uses music and how he find how he finds some of these tracks. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, like all these, um, you know, these love ballads in Spanish by Nat King Cole in this film are just like who would think to choose those? You know, for but oh, they yeah. work so perfectly. He did a film called Flying uh, Fallen Angels, and there's an acapella version of Only You by an acapella group called the Flying Pickets. Mm. And it is used so perfectly. I'm like, there is a really obscure track, right? Like, <laughs> right. And, 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 and probably not what you would think about in a Hitman movie. 
which is right. which is of course Wong Kar Wai doing a hitman movies. It's not what you would think of. It's not particularly action like or thrillery, but it's it's very nostalgic and romantic. But you're just thinking there is no way this acapella, this British acapella group from the early eighties is gonna come in and just be this like haunting love song and he does it and you're just like where is he finding these juxtapositions of music tracks and and images just i don't know how his brain works but it's just, <laughs> it just leaves you in awe incredible well we're, we'll have to invite you back david to do a whole other episode on wong kar wai because i feel like we can go on oh, forever happily happily do it. <laughs> but for now let us get your third and final sir so mine is also a Chinese film, but uh, and like I said, it almost was in the mood for love. Um, but Wong Kar Wai was a filmmaker I came to late. Actually, uh, I came to him. I, think I discovered him back when I was in film school. So uh, that was years later, and then I went back and 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 I heard about In the Mood for Love at the time, but I don't know if I'd seen it. And I I'd like it, it was a later discovery. What the film that I was really about at this time period. Um, especially as a young Asian American, was Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, or Wu mm-hmm. Sun Long. It was, you know, it was just, it'll always have a personal, personal connection to me because it was like the first time as a kid growing up that I suddenly saw like Chinese cinema and Chinese actors, directors, filmmakers emerge into the popular consciousness of America. I mean, the film was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director was uh, was nominated for all these awards. It was people, regular people were seeing it. It was not some sort of like ethnic niche. It wasn't. It wasn't like you think of like with a foreign film where it was only playing in certain theaters and and you know and and only people from like a, like maybe the Asian you know Chinese community had seen it. It was like a popular phenomenon. Yeah. And, and in fact, in some ways it was more of an American um, phenomenon. I, when I would later on talk to some of my relatives in Hong Kong, apparently they like, they make these movies like all the time. Right. Like, so this wasn't like, like this is like, Oh, another one of them. You know what I mean? It would be like, it would be like, uh, you know, if you went back and you saw like a Western in America and you're like, Oh yeah, there's like a million of those. Right. Like, so, or, you know, a superhero movie. But for me, who loved growing up playing Dungeons and Dragons and fantasy stories and stuff, it was like fantasy, but from a through a Chinese lens. And it was so unabashedly Chinese in culture and in like just this presentation of this beautiful, lush landscape of, of China. And so for me, it just like it always has this like really personal place in my heart as this film that really was this awakening for me and really saying that like you could be part of the mainstream conversation, you could be part of the American conversation without having to sacrifice your identity. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it's hard to really go back in time and realize how remarkable that was. I mean, now we're still getting there and there's still a lot more work to do, but I feel like there's a greater sense of a celebrate. We still actually honestly don't have a lot of good representation of Asian Americans, especially in, in cinema. At least we're now living in an age where there's more of a sense that cinema should embrace a diversity of voices and a diversity of cultures and that they're not niche or they're not only for that culture, but they're for all of us. But at the time, I was just really struck seeing like a Chinese film. I mean, well, I mean, when you think about it, Parasite just won the, you know, the best picture award. That was pretty significant. But at the time, the idea that like 20 years ago, this Chinese movie was getting a best picture nomination was really, was really remarkable and was really, I think really something that, that gave me the sense that like, oh, 
you can be a filmmaker without having to sacrifice or hide or submerge a part of who you are. And then the movie, you know, I'm, I'm saying it in the context of me, but the movie is really fantastic. I mean, the movie is this beautiful, elegant, I mean, again, talk about people who know what they do. Ang Lee has mastered this whole sense of, of people kind of pushing up against the boundaries of society and not quite being able to break through them and the heartache that that's about. And he combines it with just an incredible visual feast. I mean, everything from the bamboo fight, sword fight in the trees to the, you know, the beautiful mountain waterfalls to the, to these, this incredible uh, soundtrack that Tan Doon does with this like broken cello that he plays mm. all of this, like this lush world that he creates. And it's a fun movie too, you know? So yeah. Got swords and action and all that. Have you both seen it or? I have, and I've been, I need to revisit it. I didn't get a chance to revisit it before we recorded today, but it had been on my list to revisit for a long time. Kind of similar to you when I, when I saw this, when it first came out, it blew my hair back because I hadn't seen anything like this before. I was very young. I hadn't seen a lot of foreign films and I hadn't seen, you know, like, this kind of wire work and all yeah. of the just just it was very very fresh for me and very eye-opening for me and it i credit it with kind of enabling me to go search out more chinese films and then after that more foreign films in general so it was it was it was a landmark film for me as well there are still images from that film that stick with me forever it, it's a gorgeous gorgeous movie yeah yeah. Yeah, I saw it when it first came out. I guess so I saw it like 20 years ago. <laughs> I also like I haven't I don't think I've seen it since. We just got this poster from my friend Bick, shout out to Bick. That's like the 100 essential films to watch, you know, very yeah. subjective. Crouching Tiger is on there and um I was like, "All right, we got to got to watch this movie." <laughs> I mean, I think that the visuals like will never leave your mind once you've seen it. Like, I don't remember the plot now because it's been 20 years. If you had told me, you could tell me it was about literally anything and I'd probably believe you. <laughs> but like the, like you said, the bamboo fight and like being on like the rooftops mm -hmm. and that just kind of stays with you forever. I think, I correct me if I'm wrong, I think he is the first person of color to win the best director oscar not for this actually he won best foreign film but he was later for broke back um and then he actually won it again twice for uh, life of pi but i think he was the first i think it was before and then i think afterwards you had this um whole string of incredible latinx directors yeah that, that followed but i think he was the first non-white person to win an academy award for best director it sounds right. I can think of others who were nominated before that, but yeah. I, I can't think of any winners. Yeah. One of the things that I really love about Ang Lee is, you know, he can make a film like this that is so rooted in Chinese culture and Chinese mythology, but then he also can make a film like Brokeback Mountain or The Ice Storm that are just like completely ingrained in these like you know small town america and like he really seems to understand what it means to be american the good things and the bad things that come along with it in some ways more than a lot of you know american filmmakers it's really true it's really true he's not an outs he's not 
you know, he's not cultureless, even though he does all these different cultures, life of mm-hmm. Pi, it's India and all this. He, what he does is he understands the relationship between people and their culture and the sometimes uncomfortable relationship, right? Like, yeah. like people in Crouching Tiger, they're constantly, you know, there's an arranged marriage story. There's people who, you know, they, they were in love, but because of like the social mores of the society, because, you know, one person, you know, he, she had already been in love with the guy's, I think, best friend or something, you know, now he can't date her or he can't marry her, you know, like there's all these like cultural restrictions and yet they're bumping up against them, right? They want to love each other, even though it's not allowed. That's true for Brokeback, right? That's true. I, the ice storm, there's people who are just, you know, so in some ways he has to make a film, even though if he's an outsider of the culture, he has to deeply understand it because so much of his film is about the way in which our cultural um, restraints, our cultural structures can sometimes inhibit us from being yeah. able to be our authentic selves. So it's really it's it's really interesting that he he just does a masterful job of of understand whatever culture he's talking about, whatever culture he's exploring, he just does a masterful job of immersing himself and really understanding like you said the essence sometimes better than, you know, he understands America in some ways better than people who were born here and maybe for whom um, don't get to see it with the fresh eyes of somebody who's an outsider. And it may be between two worlds, right? He's also seeing China from the point of view of somebody who moved to America and, you know, went to NYU and, you know, grew up. So, you know, he's, he's, there's a sort of like a, there's an outsiderness to Ang Lee, which I think gives him that sort of perspective of, he's always in a sense of having to learn about the culture. Yeah. You know? It's also, I think, a film we talk about again. Uh, the 2000s, you know, it's a film that examines, you know, differences in wealth, mm-hmm. differences in power and privilege, differences in gender and patriarchy, you know, which is something we talked about with Boiler Room or with some of the other films. But again, it is is a sense in a sense of people looking for some sort of greater meaning, right? Like their Chow Yun Fat is retiring and you get the sense that at the end of the, at the beginning of the movie, his character is going to retire and you get the, the sense that like he's, He's sort of looking for for something that he never quite found, and in the course of going on this adventure, he he sort of finds something that kind of gives him the sense of purpose. By the way, this is I think the the film that introduced Zhang Ziyi to the to the world as an inc- she's an incredible actress. Um, I had a huge crush on her for. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean she's just gorgeous. Yeah, she also is a, a, a young woman of privilege who she plays, who's trying to to kind of get more out of life than her life seems to offer her. But she's not, she's not wanting for any material thing. And in fact, she discovers that she actually likes roughing it in the cave with this outlaw yeah. more than she likes her, her wealthy life of privilege. So, I mean, it's, it's really, it, it, there's still, even, even in this film, which takes place entirely outside of America, there are still echoes of, of some of the themes of, of what 2000 really means or what we kind of conjecture it means looking back at it 20 years later man i'm i am stoked to give it another watch thank you for putting it back on our radar because uh i might even have to do it tonight because the all the all the images are coming back to me so i think it is on amazon prime i want to say right now yeah i think i think it is Thank you so much for My doing pleasure. this and coming on and talking, revisiting the year 2000. <laughs> the year 2000. 20 years later, uh, here we are. These are the films that stuck with us, our favorites. 
20 years gone. Please let us know, all you guys listening, let us know what your three are from the year 2000. You can leave us a comment on iTunes. You can also hit us up on our IG at LA Diversity Film Fest or on Twitter at LADFF. We want to hear your Gimme Three from the year 2000. David, again, we thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure. This was really fun. I really thank you for inviting me. It's a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, thank you. You're reminding me of Elvis Mitchell on this. Very insightful. <laughs> I'm always like, how do people come up with these like connections between things? I'm like, just like, it was really cool. That's about <laughs> as insightful as I get sometimes, most of the time. I call <laughs> yourself short, but yeah. <laughs> It's it's fun. It's fun. And we'll, we will have you back on. Uh, I'd be very, happy very to. Yeah. It's very fun to do it. Thank you all for listening to Film Forward, and we will catch you next time. Our recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru, and yours truly. Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, and you'll hear us next time.